Here's a little bit of fun news. Uh, as of a couple of days ago, I have been here at Simi Covenant for three years. That's kind of fun. That is pretty, uh, it's wonderful. It feels both like time has gone very quickly and there were some moments that went a little slower, right? Uh, but as, as I heard our youth director, David, preaching last week, I couldn't help but think about God's faithfulness. And if you, if you missed last week's sermon, I want to encourage you to check it out. It's online. You can watch it on, on YouTube or on Facebook. You can um, listen to the podcast get to be able to hear it. But I really felt strongly God telling me, listen, I, I have been faithful to you, Kurt, and to us as a community and I was reminded of that, and I thought, I, I want that to translate into me feeling that I can trust God for the future. And it, I know that God is alive, God is active, God is speaking to us through his word, through, his, through people, through his, uh, and God is going to be able to help me to face the challenges that we face today and to be able to do that with uh, integrity and uh, with perseverance and courage as I go forward. Uh, when, when my family, when we returned to the U.S. from living in France, we lived there for about six and a half years, it, was, um, it felt like an interruption. It felt like an interruption in our life. I didn't, I didn't know you guys yet. I didn't know how great you would be, right? I, I didn't, of course, right? I, I, I didn't know that I was going to love it, but at the time it felt like an interruption. Now when I look back at it, I see it as, as part of the continuity of God's faithfulness to me, but at the time it felt like an interruption. And then a couple months after starting here, the whole world kind of got interrupted, and uh, we all went through that stuff. And, and interruptions in our life are going to come. And we sometimes plan for that. That's like a job change or something like that. But we don't always get to choose when those interruptions are going to come, what they're going to look like. But what we can do is choose how we respond to those interruptions. One time I was working on my computer at home and uh, I was trying to concentrate. Uh, I uh, trying to just get the thoughts out of my head and, and all the stars were kind of in alignment at the moment. I actually had my computer with me and I was actually working, which was good, and I had enough caffeine in me that I could keep some concentration going. So I was trying to get my thoughts out as fast as I could before they all kind of disappeared into the ether. And about that time, my younger son, Nathan, came up and wanted my attention. And I, I don't even remember what he was asking for. He could have wanted me to play with him. He could have just been wanting to ask me a question. And so the way that that story is supposed to go, right, is that I, I closed my computer, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, yes, my son. Or wait, 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 maybe, like, I took his hand. I said, my beloved son, tell me, yes, what do you want? I, 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 no, I, I think I said, yeah, uh, give me a minute, or, you know, like, hey, I, I'm working right now, you know, something like that. <laughs> working for Jesus, okay, yeah. So something like that, I don't know. And he probably went off and played, and, and I don't know exactly what happened. But basically, I saw that as an interruption. And if, even if you don't know me, you would tell me, you know, that's, that's okay for that to happen sometimes, right? It's okay for us to have to get our work done. But that can't be the only way that I respond to my children. Even if you don't know me, you're going to say, yeah, that's not a real healthy way to always respond to your kids. Because sometimes interruptions are good. Interruptions can represent relationship. 
They, they can represent a good change from some, something that you're stuck in into something new and good and more healthy. They can be relational moments for us with other people. They can move us from a stagnant place to somewhere a bit more dynamic. Uh, usually, though, in a conversation, if we're talking with somebody, when we uh, get interrupted, it's, it's usually because they want to interject their stupid thoughts or their dumb story into my amazing story, right? Isn't that what we all think? Weird, I'm telling an amazing story, and you just tried to interject your thing in there. Although, occasionally, I will say, sometimes people have the happy thing of interrupting us by asking a question. Right, which is usually welcome, because when somebody asks us a question and they interrupt us, it's because they want to know more. They're telling you, I want you to keep talking. Tell me more, which is all of us like that. Yes, tell me to keep talking. That's what I want. Um, so questions, though, are a type of interruption. They, they break in, and they, they can be for clarification, but sometimes they do redirect the way that the conversation goes a little bit. I'm thinking about one time I... Her, one of the best questions I was ever asked, I feel like, in my life was by a guy named Greg Coles. Uh, Greg Coles is a, is a nationally known speaker who speaks about human sexuality. He's a same-sex attracted man himself, and he lives celibately for the Lord and kind of talks about a lot about what does it mean for a church community to welcome single people? What does it mean to be single for Jesus? And, uh, but he's just a very dynamic speaker, really great. And I, I met him one time when I went, and I, we had been in the U.S. for maybe about a month when I was there, and I was at a small conference that he was speaking at. I was getting a cup of coffee. He walked up to me, and he said, all right, Kurt, what is something about you that I wouldn't be able to guess from a short conversation? That, well, that's, a, that's a great question, right? Uh, and uh, it's, it was a terrific way to be able to get me to think a little bit differently. And, and it, was really, it was really meaningful to me personally because he never could have guessed that I had just got off a plane and I was freaking out uh, because I had Costco now. I didn't, I, it was like the whole world was different. I didn't know. But I, w I had also suffered the loss of very nice croissants. So I was going through a loss, right? I was facing a loss of nice croissants in my life an abundance of nice croissants in my life. That made me a little sad to think about it again, actually, to tell you the truth. Okay, all right. All right, so questions are a type of interruption. They can be positive, and they can be negative. And so knowing that, it's not going to be surprising to you to know that in Scripture, both God and Satan use questions. And we're going to see that in our uh, text today, although they use them for very different purposes. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up. We're going to be looking at Genesis 3, we are kicking off a series, this is kind of a warm-up for our series, we're going to be getting into uh, questions that Jesus asks in the New Testament, we're going to be doing that over the next weeks, so that was the study guide that's going to go along with that. But what we're thinking about today is the fact that, that God does ask us questions, and they sometimes interrupt our lives. Let's, let's pray as we enter into this. Lord, I, I pray that we will be able to be attentive to your interruptions in our lives. May, may we be ready for you to ask us things that might change the direction that we go, that communicates how you want to have relationship with us. May we, may we see you in your word and have trust because of it, have it become concrete in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, so book of Genesis. Always, I tell you, if you want to grab a Bible on your way in when you're coming in, if you're here, you can grab one in the back. There's a bookshelf back there. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. We're going to start in, uh, we're going to be reading just in Genesis 3. And it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And I will tell you, we, we do not have time to go into the fact that why there is a talking serpent here. We do not have time for that. Suffice to say, this serpent is connected with kind of the forces of evil in general, and more specifically with the voice of Satan. It's connected with Satan in particular. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Here, this, he is being deceptive. That is not what was said. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The must not touch it part well, it seems an addition. That's not what God said, but she's a lot closer. So the, Genesis 3.1 has the first, the very first question that's in the whole Bible, and it's asked by Satan. And I, I don't want us to read too much into that. Questions are not inherently bad. But, but look, he, he noticed that he's, he's taking and using this question as a way to, to twist and distort not only God's words, but trying to push the, these people in a different direction. And it causes the woman to go on the defensive. Oh, so um, it's kind of like in, in a presidential debate when they say, so you think all Americans are stupid, right? And you go, no, 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 no. Like, so the question is, is twisted on purpose to try to cause some trouble, and it, it's working. So these, these questions are going to stick with us. It's, it's this, this thing that's stuck, it's going to stick in her head like the question that I was asked by Greg Coles. So when we think about these good questions that people ask us, they can sometimes be things that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be the phrasing of the way that they ask the question. Sometimes it's because they ask us the right question at the right time, or maybe we're noticing that they... Um, they, they recognize what was going on for us. They see what's happening in us and are able to ask it at the, the perfect moment. They're really attentive to us. Uh, questions can help us to see our situations a little bit differently, like what's happening here. Uh, maybe somebody can even ask you, you know, maybe something's hard going on. They can say, well, you know, what do you think God would say to you in this moment? That would be a wonderful question to ask somebody. Uh, it, it helps, if I think about that, if somebody thinks to ask me that, it can help me to reframe the way that I see my circumstances. What, what does God have to say to you in this? It can reframe us. But in this moment here, the serpent, he, he asks this purposely deceptive question, and it reframes what's happening, but not in a very good way. And he's trying to shift the view from that this couple is disobeying God to now to be something almost like it's a positive thing, like you're doing something noble and, and wonderful. You're, you're, you're doing something praiseworthy. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay. When the woman saw that the fruit for the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, so this is bad. Uh, in Christian faith, we refer to what happened here as the fall. It's a, it's a fall from a state of, of wholeness to a state of brokenness. D just imagine if somebody has a whole mirror and they drop it, and it shatters, 
And afterwards, you can say, well, how in the world can you ever put this back together again? And that is the way that we see what happened here. It's broken in a way that we ask, how can this ever be repaired? But maybe you've, ever, you've wondered, you know, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of fruit, right? Maybe you've, maybe you've wondered, you know, why is taking a piece of fruit such a big deal, really? And it's, it's not actually about the specific piece of fruit. It's not that the fruit is supposed to be symbolic of something else that, that oh, was more, uh, more of a big deal. No, that's not the point. The point is, God gave them this garden, and the only limitation he gave them was specifically this thing. He gave them a limitation. And from the response of the woman, when she looks at the tree, she says, hey, it's, it's good for food. It looks good. It smells good. It seems like it should be right. So the only reason, it's not that it's like bad or something. The only reason not to take it is because God said don't. They had to trust God. But rather than allowing God to be the one in charge, they chose to be the ones who got to decide what was right and what was wrong. They got to decide. It's not simply eating this fruit or that fruit. It was actually an act of rebellion against God. Remember, these are people who only knew good before, and afterwards they know good and evil. And what happened when they took this fruit is that they, they, were, they were declaring that they were the ones who got to decide. They, they were the ones who got to make all the decisions, and it feels like a really small act to us, right? Because we, we live in a world where there are, is a long list of ways to get into trouble, which a, a lot of our teens are trying to find out about. Um, but so it's, it's hard for us to compare our world today to what it was like for them, what's really described here, because we live in a world that is after this. And... We live in this world where small and large acts of selfishness and deceitfulness are kind of a part of the fabric of life, but they did not. God, God had drawn one small circle of no in a garden of yes, and they ended up telling God no. They used their no to say their no back to God. And it's this no toward God that, that we feel in our world, we feel the aftershocks of this no toward God in all of the, the selfishness and, and all of the self-centeredness, all of the callousness in our world. Kind of links back to the spirit of that no toward God. So their, their choice, I, I, effectively they're saying, God, you, th you think you're king, but I'm going to take your crown and put it on my own head. So when we see it, we can know this is a lot more than one simple act of taking a piece of fruit. I, I think it was an emboldening of their, of their me, not in a good sense, but in a sense of me, me, me. They, they were emboldened in the, in the me, not in like, a, like an appropriate sense of, of self, but in a sense of selfishness. I'm the one who gets to decide. You can't tell me what to do. And they've started to sing this song of me that still reverberates today. I still sing it. But there's grace in our narrative, and this is beautiful. It's amazing. God isn't going to leave them like that. He is going to interrupt the me. He's going to interrupt what is happening and that, that would be a spiral of selfishness. And he inserts himself in the story, and here's where God asks his question. Verse 8. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Something that they seems like they were used to meeting with God. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he, the man, answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So God comes and asks a question. And after they, they crawl out of their hiding place from behind a tree, <coughs> the man says, hey, I was, I was uncomfortable. I realized I was uncovered at the moment. I was feeling really naked, and so I hid. And it's interesting, in that phrase right there, the man uses the word I four times. I heard you. I was afraid. I was naked, so I hid. So we can see that this, the kind of me here has been fired up. It's warming up, the me. And there's this the spiral of selfishness that I was talking about, it's, it started to begin, and God has come to interrupt that. Because Satan wanted to corrupt them, but God wanted to interrupt what was happening. Satan wanted to corrupt, but God wants to interrupt what's happening here. And not in the rude sense, he's, he's interrupting in the same sense when we talk about that there's a vicious cycle, and somebody needs to interrupt a vicious cycle. He's come to interrupt the me, 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 me. First, he has to find them because they're hiding from him. And, and, and maybe you have experienced this same kind of feeling, the thing that the couple has experienced here, the, the feeling of wanting to hide. And it doesn't have to be with God. It can be with other people as well. It happens. In a moment where you realize that you've done something wrong or something embarrassing, it's, we realize that we, our, knee, our knee-jerk reaction is that we want to hide. We want to cover it up. We don't want people to see it. We, we want to pretend maybe like it's not there. All those are ways of us trying to hide the fact that we're vulnerable. We feel uncovered. And, and, but when we read in our scripture, we realize how super ridiculous it is. He's trying to hide from God, right? <laughs> you can hide from another person. They're going to hide somewhere on, on campus. You can hide from us physically, not let us see them. We can hide, try to hide from people metaphorically, hide from them so we don't feel so naked and, and out there in the open. And we heard the way that Satan had tried to twist God's words. He was trying to, to push people in a bad way. He used pressure. He uses kind of a, a lie to be able to, to push the couple in their own way. But listen to the, the grace that's here in God's statement. It's, it's stern, I think, but it is gentle. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? God knows where he is. God, God knows where he is, right? Where are you? And it's grace. It's grace because he gives the man the chance to, this couple, the chance to step out themselves and come to him, to come out of hiding. It's grace because behind his question is the desire for relationship and the desire to have them express the desire for a relationship, because right now they're expressing a desire to be by themselves. Because where are you? That question means, hey, I am looking for you. I want you. I want to be with you. I'm not the one hiding. You're the one hiding. 
The devil's question sought to, to drive a wedge between the couple and God. What, we see, what do we see, though, after the first act of disobedience of this couple? This is, this is the fall of humanity. What comes right after the spoiling of God's perfect creation? What do we see there? We see God moving toward people. He initiates, and he takes the first step. Because remember, God could have just left them. He could have just got rid of them. Oh, I'm going to start again. But he doesn't leave them. He comes to them. And they came out of hiding. Why? Because God called for them. He comes to them. He wants them. Uh, sometimes we get the idea that if we are bad or if we're particularly sinful, that God doesn't actually want us. It's a pretty common idea. But can you see how this particular story undermines that idea about what God is like? Because even in this place, in this place where people have broken something for the first time, that's where God is still the initiator. God is still the one who is chasing after people, chasing after them even when they are fearful and they are reluctant. God is chasing them. God isn't hiding from people. People are hiding from God. Well, I, I, I kind of wonder how we might be hiding from God. There's, there's parts in our life where we don't really want God to see. We feel like if God, knew, if God knew about this thing, it would be really embarrassing, right? Good thing we were able to hide all that stuff from God, right? That's so good. But there's a sense where God can be saying to us, where are you? Where are you? He's not pressing. He's calling. Where are you? Then the, the man says about being naked, and the, then God asks two questions in quick succession. Verse 11, he says this. And he, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So this, the second half of his question is simple enough, I think. Uh, the answer to have you eaten from the tree is Yes, uh, yes I did, yes I have. Um, for the first question, uh, the reason why God knows that they know that they're naked is because he knows that they ate from the tree. He, he, nobody needed to tell them this thing. It was not so innocent as that. He, they ate from it and suddenly they realized that they were naked when they disobeyed. Because what happened when they disobeyed God, when they took that fruit, they, they tore off, they, they were whole people. They were whole Un, unruined, unbroken, and they tore off a piece of themselves and because they were tearing off their own trust in God at that moment. And now they felt shame. It was like removing the cover of wholeness. Now they are without that, and they feel naked. And, and that disobedience that they do, it, we feel it right away. Look, it, it appears right away. Rather than taking responsibility for his part in this, the man, he dodges. First question, or second question he gets there, he dodges. Because he did have a part in this, right? The man was there. If, you, if you've previously thought about this, you thought um, this was just Eve's deal. No, nah, no. Um, because maybe if you thought that, you didn't realize that the man was there taking a part of it. Yes, the dialogue that is in there is between Eve and the serpent, right? But it says when she took the fruit, she, she gave it to her husband who was right there. Like, dude's right there. He's just not talking, Right? But rather than taking responsibility for his, fa his fault in this whole thing, he says, yeah, it's, it's not my fault. It wasn't me. 
it, it was the woman who, she gave it to me. Uh, when, I, when I was, I think I was, I, I think I was 16. My, my parents would let me back out the car earlier than that, but I think I was, I think I had my driver's license, I think, you know. But my parents would let me, when I was, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, I could back out the car, you know. And it was kind of fun. Like, either we would be wanting to, to play in the driveway, uh, and I have, I have three brothers that, you know, we made a lot of destruction in our neighborhood, and, um, but we wanted to play in our driveway. And so sometimes I would ask, oh, can I, can I move the car? Or maybe I just wanted to back it out and get it warmed up for my mom as she left. And we had this, this big, huge van. My sister is uh, severely handicapped, so we had this van with a big lift in it. So a big thing that was there. And I backed it up one time. And one, one time, as I was backing it up, I think not so carefully, backed it across the street um, s- rather slowly into the fire hydrant, right? Um, and I didn't break the fire hydrants, but it, fire hydrants are pretty strong compared to the van. And... Um, kind of pulled, I felt a sense of shame in the moment, and uh, as, I, as I went forward, I kind of put it in a different spot, and I saw that it had a little yellow paint on the side, and I considered for a moment if I could make a case for a yellow car sideswiping us. Uh, that didn't seem very logical. You know what, I, I decided on the next best thing, which was to not say anything and hope that nobody noticed, right? And uh, so... Oddly enough, they did notice, my parents, uh, that there was something there. And, and I think that my defense was something like, well, why did they put the fire hydrant there across the street anyway? Because what? It's not my fault. It was the fire department's fault. The city who put that stupid fire hydrant right there. It wasn't my fault. Because I wanna dodge. We don't want to dodge. I don't want it to be my fault. It's anybody's fault but mine. I don't want it to be my fault. So the, the man, he puts the blame on the woman. And even worse than that, did you notice it? He deflects the blame from himself, and he blames God. The woman that you put here with me. You know, God, things were all right for me when I was here by myself. A little bit lonely, but you know what? I was going well. I did okay. I did fine. And even if I did do it, maybe, it's because you put her here with me. Caused a big disruption in the force. Okay? And, and maybe we think, well, you know what? If God wanted me to be on a diet, he wouldn't put donuts at church, right? In the Lord's house. And even if they are holy donuts, right? Say, well, it's not my fault. There are donuts here. Uh, so we, we dodge. We try to find it to be somebody else's fault. So in this, this perfect place where there was a perfect connection between God God and people, between the man and the woman, between the people and creation, between all of nature, there was perfect harmony before that. It ends up being shattered. And, and we see it right away. Because on, on top of all the, the previous, the hiding from God, the selfishness now is showing itself in the way that they dodge. And it's breaking apart the relationship between the man and the woman and between the man and God. And, and he's not the only one. The same symptoms appear in the woman as well. Verse 13 Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And and when we hear this question to her, what have you done, I I think we should be clear that I don't think God's trying to shame her. He is starting the process of seeking to heal her. Because if we can answer that question, what have you done, with some honesty, we can begin the process of healing. They need, 
for their own healing to begin to recognize the enormity of what has happened. I, I feel like she's a little more honest, at least. She tells the truth. At least she admits that she ate, yes. Um, she does still deflect a bit and points to the serpent. And, and both of them, when they answer God, they both deflect. They both do that thing. They dodge. They blame somebody else. So they had been physically hiding from God behind a tree, but even after they come out from behind the tree, they're still kind of trying to hide. I think that this is, had not exp- they had not experienced this with God before. They've both entered into this vicious cycle of blaming the other. And I think we can admit that that cycle or that spirit of deflection has trickled down to us. It shows up in the blaming in our own life, right? Whether it's on the donuts or um, we could say, hey, you know, it's not that I'm an angry person. It's that that person is really frustrating. If they hadn't left it out, I wouldn't have stolen it. Right? And the Bible teaches us that this kind of thinking, we can apply it to a lot of different areas, right? We can have a long list of ideas for what that kind of blame could look like. But that kind of thinking is a part of, of what we were supposed to leave behind as believers. That kind of blaming, deflecting is a part of the old life that we were supposed to leave behind in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this, But you were washed, you were sanctified, made holy, You were justified, brought into communion with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You're not not those kind of people anymore. God has done this change in you. It It is interesting, I will say, both the man and the woman do say something somewhat true, right? You can give them some credit for that. The woman did give the fruit to the man, true statement, and the serpent did deceive the woman, that is true, but they did have their part. And that's what we're getting at. The man and the woman chose the direction that they went in. And that's part of the problem. So for us, in the the issues that we are facing, do other people have a part? Yes. Right? Yes, your coworker is frustrating. Yes. Your circumstances are hard. Those are real. Yes, that person was unkind. Yes. But we can see it when it's them. We can see, hey, you know, they had their part, right? Like, we, we get that. So blaming somebody else is, is not going to help us. It's not going to help the process. It's, it's, it's living out the ripples of this big event rather than living into the new life of the Spirit that God is calling us to. Well, it is easy for us to be consumed by our own self. Uh, like We're kind of like a boardroom of people a lot of times who kind of keep going around and around in a certain idea, and they need somebody else to come in from the outside to give them a new perspective, and I think we need that. We, we need to be interrupted. We need God to interrupt us, interrupt me, and, and that is why the defining act of interruption of God was the opposite of a selfish act. That God gave himself, gave himself up on the cross to die for us. That God's perfect act of interruption was to to interrupt us and interrupt our selfishness by giving of his life on the cross. And that's that's the life that we are called to. We're called to, to follow behind this kind of God to kind of give up on the old Adam and follow this new one. 
Jesus himself. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if you are ready for the Lord to ask you some questions in the next couple of months. Because as we get into this series, we're going to be looking at questions that Jesus asks. And he is the best question asker there is in the world. He is the one who is going to ask questions that lead toward relationship. He's going to ask disruptive questions that challenge people to think differently. He's going to reframe whole subjects. You have been thinking in this way. It's not like that at all. I'm going to twist your perspective and change in the way that we do it. I hope that you will join us over these next couple of months because there are going to be some really great things as we study under the master question asker, Jesus, who's going to interrupt them. So I want to encourage you to not miss this series. Try to be here for these things. It's going to be really great because throughout this, I think that Jesus is going to interrupt us. He's going to ask questions of the world. He's going to ask questions of us that are going to move us in a different way. He's going to disrupt all the disintegration of the world, and, and he's going to challenge the me-centered world. All right, so th- this is the thing that I think we should close with. Are, are you willing to actually invite God to interrupt you? To actually say, God, I need you to interrupt me, because we can't, don't always even see the thing that needs to be interrupted. We assume we're right. We don't want him to get in the middle of our story. I'm telling a better story, God. Don't interrupt me. So let's, let's take a moment in prayer, specifically. I, I'd, I'd like for you to, to take a moment in silence and actually say to God, God, I don't, I don't know what it's going to be that you're going to do, but I want you to interrupt me. Lord, we ask you to interrupt us because we've still got some of that spirit of deflection. I can find lots of ways to hide. And it's, it's silly for me to hide from you because you're God. You know where I am. You know my story. You know what I've been through. You know what I'm facing. You know what is hard and what it, I pretend is hard. We ask you to interrupt us so that we will have relationship with you so that it will repair even relationships around us. Give us new perspective. Send us in a new direction. We ask you all of this because of Jesus. Amen.